relatives, concerns around end-of-life care during the lockdowns. Uh, my first got into this a couple of years ago. There's a lot of issues I'm dealing with personally around the lockdowns, vaccines, and this is just one of them. I get all the easy jobs in Parliament, you know that. So I've been working with, with Paul for quite a while. He's supplied a lot of very useful evidence to me, which uh, I've read. So I'm pretty fairly well versed. Paul is quite uh, progressed with his, uh, his legal case, and he's willing, and we've spoken to his lawyers, he's willing to probably tell you a lot about, about his case personally. And um, then we'll open it before. We were hoping to have Stuart Wilkie here at the last minute. He probably because of the hot weather, he didn't feel very well. And he wants to zoom, but unfortunately, I don't have a zoom date available just to deal with that. We may try and get him on the phone. We'll see how long Paul wants to speak for. And we'll do QAs after. All right. So this is your parliament. Relax. Um, this is where you should feel at home. This is where the decisions are made. This is where.
I'd like to bring to your attention a conversation um, if you're not aware of it, I'd, already, I'd like to bring to your attention a conversation between Dr. Evans MP and Matt Hancock at a select committee, committee meeting on the 17th of April 2020, which I believe is relevant to the subject we will discuss today, which is why each of you have a copy of the transcript, transcript and specifically questions 377 to 379 from that meeting. That's been handed out to each of you for reference. Hopefully you've all got a copy of that. Um, following the meeting in question, it would seem accurate to identify that it resulted in the rollout of NHS guideline NG163, which is authorised for use specifically for breathlessness and or agitation in COVID-19. After three years speaking extensively to medical experts, it's been confirmed that the respiratory suppressing drug Medazolam was identified as a first-line drug for use for breathlessness and or agitation in patients diagnosed with or without COVID-19 in NHS guideline NG163, which was seen a strange decision, at the very least, even by the basic knowledge of medication for what was a respiratory virus. Why and how was this allowed to happen? Question mark. I've mentioned patients with COVID-19 as my father wasn't breathless and he wasn't agitated which was confirmed by the London Ambulance Service report that I had. We also at no stage had COVID-19 test. He didn't have a test and he couldn't be classed as positive. I believe that NHS guideline NG163 has called each and every one of us in this room a period of up to three years or more torture and trauma. And I also believe it needs to be discussed at length in this building as a matter of urgency especially in regards to such a lack of detail coming from the COVID inquiry and the Prime Minister at the time, as well as the current Prime Minister. Hopefully this subject and this meeting today will shine a light on the details the public are entitled to understand and exact decisions that were made in 2020 to the present day in regards of the medication used and in particular the benzodiazepine drug Medazolam in the UK for COVID-19. The major difference with the former Prime Minister and the decision maker at the time, Boris Johnson, and the people in this room this evening, is that he has chosen to walk away from his responsibilities. But we will never walk away because of what we've been put through. And the reason for that is because we are purely driven by the power that is love and not by any other motive. I believe the information statements from this meeting will shine a very bright light on the COVID inquiry, which of course Mr Johnson should have done correctly in my opinion, rather than taking the options all the way. We request and expect our MPs to represent each and every one of us here to find out who signed off NHS guideline NG163 and explain the rationale behind the decision as it was challenged and warnings were raised by 11 medical experts on May 19, 2020 at the time but it was seen they were ignored. The BMJ link with that warning is in the document that's been handed out to you all. The title of the response to the proposed guideline with the warning was NICE NG163 is a welcome step but in capital needs review. It was seen it wasn't reviewed at the time when the experts brought it up and it was in fact ignored. 
why was it ignored when it was clearly stated that Bazalan would be a risk to give anybody in this situation? Who authorised the NHS guideline NG163 and did it include the palliative care expert opinion? If so, who was that expert? We as a group write the individual name or group of names responsible for authorising the guideline as the expert opinion of a palliative care expert would surely have been required for sign-off before being presented to the Health Secretary, Health, Health Secretary at the time, Matthew Hancock. I always struggle before I get his name. I don't mean I'm saying, and I struggle that part when I get his name. Sorry about that. Anyway. We need an explanation of the difference between NHS guideline NG163, which is authorised presentation breakfast during COVID-19, and the abolished Liverpool Care pathway. As it seems to be an exact carbon copy in regard to doses, and the lethal combination of benzodiazepine and opioid currently still used in the USA on death row for amongst others, high security prisoners, including nobles. This was also used in the NHS and still is. If no difference can be explained in regard to NG163 and the abolished medical care pathway, then the only conclusion is it was illegal to authorise the use of a combination of medication at the doses specified in the NHS guideline NG163. This is once again a question that must surely be answered by the Secretary of State of Health at the time, Matt Hancock, as it's ultimately and must have been his responsibility. It is my opinion that every single person here representing their dead loved one is illegal. It's because those poor souls were on NHS guideline NG163, even though it may have been labelled as a different variation of pathway. It all ended up as that particular guideline, including the use of medazolam and an opioid, as well as withdrawal of water and food. Someone in this room's father, who will speak later, was put on this guideline in 2017, a pathway. The title of this pathway is Use of Appropriate Chemical Restraint in the Management of Agitated Patients on General Adult Wards and in Accident and Emergency. Chemical restraint. Medazolam. This is an example of someone who's here today who speaks shortly regarding their father's pathway, which is specifically titled that one I just said. This man was put on this pathway three years before what would seem to be his untimely death. Before I continue, I want to explain where I am with my own specific case regarding my father. And please keep in mind, in June 2020, when I suspected something was seriously wrong and how he was treated, all I wanted to be was wrong. Sadly, I wasn't. In an attempt to help all of you in this room from my experience in your journey to try and achieve justice, the NHS will lie. They will use delayed tactics. They will conveniently lose medical records. They will destroy medical records. They will ignore and deny anything and everything that risks linking to NG163 guideline and to the abolished medical care pathway. But with so many excess deaths still currently happening, I find it hard to believe that what we are discussing today is not connected. This includes all doctors and nurses that have carried out this procedure without questioning and surely must be held responsible if proven to be accurate as per the warnings of the 11 medical professors and doctors in May 2020. As it would seem, they had the choice to challenge the guideline, as Mr. Hancock has stated in interviews about himself when questioned. A guideline is simply what it says, just a guideline, which of course shifts responsibility. 
So, if all that I'm saying is true, why haven't we seen any court cases yet? For starters, I'll tell you the truth. It will require 20,000 pounds to start off with. At least you'll be able to have a position to have a lawyer to take on your case. And that's if you're lucky enough to find a lawyer brave enough to expose the truth beyond the medication that I believe all of our loved ones have received. That cannot be right just to get to the point of justice for your loved one whose death has been hastened. This system is designed to be against us, even though we are the victims, and requires immediate change, as it is purposely designed not for the benefit of we, the people. After three long years of torture and trauma, I am now in a position that I believe will give you all hope, and that is thanks to my legal team and medical expert. I can confirm that we I can confirm that we have won our clinical negligence case against the oldest hospice in the UK, Royal Trinity Hospice, who were responsible for what happened to my father, and who, interest, who interestingly have Sir Andrew Dillon as a director, who was previously CEO of National Institute for Health and Care Excellence until 2012. Royal Trinity Hospice have accepted breach of duty and made a settlement payment, which because of the legal system in the UK, I was forced into what I felt like was a corner to accept it, with a limited time offer of less than 24 working hours. Though in my own words, I wasn't interested in their dirty death money. In fact, the payment barely covers the cost, the legal cost of the coroner's inquest. We are now currently in a position where following an investigation, we are awaiting the confirmation date of the coroner's inquest to proceed to uncover the absolute, absolute truth regarding the exact details of how, why, and what happened at Royal Trinity Hospice regarding my father's death. Myself, my expert witness and legal team are confident we have incontrovertible evidence and we have faith that the coroner in question who has requested answers to the following very specific questions from the staff of Royal Trinity Hospice, which will prevent similar breaches in care and therefore eliminate the ongoing risk to the general public, which I believe is still currently the case. The coroner's questions are, one, was the medical, what was the medical cause of death? I repeat, what was the medical cause of death? Two, did medication toxicity cause or contribute to death? Royal Trinity Hospice were asked these two very straightforward questions consisting of only 15 words in total four months ago that to this day have still failed to produce not any answer. In my opinion, these two questions should not take over four months to answer. So therefore, I can only assume there is no transparency and something is being kept from allowing the truth to be exposed. But we know the truth always acts in the end. We believe the only way to understand the exact truth is for every member of staff involved in my father's case, I won't say care, case, is to give evidence under oath in the coroner's court, as I myself am happy to do so, to determine the exact cause of death. I was assured by the CEO, named Emily Carter, that Royal Trinity Hospice would carry out an in-depth internal and external investigation as to why mistakes were made following. But I instead received a ready-made template named Patient Safety Incident Investigation Report PS2. 
So they've still got lies and cover-ups continuing after three years later with a ready-made template. That's the template that you all get when you get to my stage. Okay? That's the template. Um, I now encourage you all to... Sorry, I'm just... It would not seem a coincidence that the PS2 template is already waiting for your legal cases and complaints once you have wasted your time with PALS, the CQC, the CCG and all other smokescreen organisations supposedly in place for the public to protect us from wrongdoing. I now realise that they are all part of a well-organised system to protect the NHS from complaints such as ours. <coughs> I now encourage you all to represent your dead loved ones in a way that brings you first stage of justice by speaking with accuracy and truth to shine a light on this barbaric pathway which it seems was in place for all of our loved ones in where because of a specific combination of medication used could only have ended in death. I would like to say a special thank you to Magic Nawaz who is here this evening covering this subject so comprehensively but it, it has without doubt been covered up by all mainstream media. That's the subject of the battle now, in NG163. And now the time it needs to come out on mainstream media. Even though I have proof that they are aware of it, the mainstream media know. They know that they won't. They're frightened to talk about it. For reference, I'm in regular contact with Magic, and he is following my legal case very closely as he progresses and reaches a conclusion, and very kindly has assured me it will get maximum exposure. It has reached the point where it's too big to ignore any longer. Once again, thank you very much, Major Vision, for allowing us to finally have our voices heard. Okay. I'm personally very grateful
were uh, completely you can contact me, I can, I can put those questions in. Um, I've recently asked how many patients were moved out of hospital uh, in early 2020 um, into care homes or nursing homes, and how many of those died of A, what's called a COVID-19, or B, other causes, within seven days, 14 days, 31 days, 28 days, 56 days, etc. And, um, and I have a fear that uh, the overwhelming majority of those vulnerable people who have moved out of hospital uh, into care homes uh, will sadly pass very, very quickly. And the vast majority of them will be COVID 19, put on their, their death certificates. And we'll see when those first questions um, come back. Thank you. 
here, and he's got all the numbers, unfortunately. Um, would anybody else like to speak their own experience? Uh, if you put your hand up or ask a question, or um, just tell me who you are, and we'll go around the room. I'll try and keep order. Yes. Um, my name's Jennifer. I'm representing my mother, Ellie Williams, who was born in, in October 21st, 1929. She was um, taken by the Nazis, the SS, when she was 10 and 12, because she was left-handed and her hand was kind of tied behind her back. Um, she was also taken again for the second time because she was very small. Uh, I have a picture of her with her brother and sister. She's also very blonde, blue, blue eyes, and the whole family is blonde-haired, blue eyes. And the only way that we can consider that she was returned back to home is because she was blonde-haired and blue eyes. She came to this country in 1948, married to my father. Um, I was born in 1949, and I was raised in, in Hollywood because my mum and dad and I suffered the consequences of my mother being in Germany. Um, when she was um, working, she worked part-time while I went to school. She worked all through her life. She became a fully qualified accountant with distinction. She's a black girl, first down in, in uh, Taekwondo. She learned three other languages besides her own, which was German, uh, sorry, Russian, Italian, and English. Um, she Excuse swore that she I'm was. I'm sorry, I don't want to seem insensitive, but there's a lot of people who want to speak. We quickly get to. I understand that we all love our, our relatives, and there's a lot of people who want to speak. So if you could talk about the care that she received or didn't receive, that would be absolutely fantastic. That she received was the um, social services were involved. They stopped the family going to the family home. Um, whenever we arrived, the police arrived. Um, we had to climb through the window because they took her keys away. They took her glasses away and put them on the top shelf. They put maggots all the way around her, the borders of her living room. Um, they stopped her from going outside. They wouldn't let us in or out. They re refused any kind of information through the hospital in big red letters in Barnstable. Um, it was said that no, no information to go to the family. Um, it, they put her in a care home on the 2nd of December against our wishes, against her wishes, through the Court of Protection. The judge was actually quite sympathetic and brought us back in the 22nd of December um, and then issued a round table meeting to be done on the 18th of February. She was put into the care home and she had five falls um, within three and a half weeks. One of them was with a, um, a broken hip. She came out of hospital on the 11th of January. She went back in on the 12th of January, again on the 13th of January, all with falls again. And um, she came out on the 17th. She was um, put on end of life until the 20, sorry, till the 14th of February, she was then, we were allowed to see her on the 10th of February. On the 12th of February, the uh, social services went to her and to identify her name. And then that afternoon, she was admitted into hospital. And by the 14th of February, 12.34, she was pronounced dead. They rang me and asked me, I have recordings of all of the, of 900 recordings. Um, they asked me if um, they wanted her wedding ring um, held back, and when I went there 
to pick up the volume of the funeral director, there was no wedding ring. And I've since found out that there's hundreds and thousands of people losing their wedding rings. Um, was, was, was your mother prescribed the Dazzalan and morphine? 60 milligrams of Dazzalan, 30 of morphine. Um, and that was, she fought every step of the way from the 21st of January to the 14th. And there were no, there were no family consent or her consent?
the review date, November 2020, he died December 2020. So if we take a look at um, all the reasons why, you know, why we should be on this pathway, one thing, he had a kidney problem. You should never be on this pathway if you've got a kidney problem. Um, terminal agitation, this policy is not primarily intended for patients requiring end of life, so why was he on it? Um, if we go through to, I'll, I'll cut it short, but I have got this for you, um, for actually what this, this rapid tranquilization pathway is. The Razzlecan, the Dazzlecan pathway. Now this, this was was 2020. He was put on this rapid tranquilization pathway in the June. So that was a halo pteridol. Okay, that's a halo pteridol at 0.5. It goes through, you've even got a flow chart of how to, how to do it. Um, with the Razzlecan and the Dazzlecan, uh, and there's the pathway. It's called a rapid tranquilization <coughs> pathway. This is horrendous. How do they know, back in November, uh, back in 2017, my dad wasn't even falling there. He was doing his running around, his climbing, his hiking. But we've got this document and signed off again. And he was put, is it coincidence that in the May, they said the review of the in the May 2020, they gave it to him in the June. The Dazzalan review it in the November 2020, they gave it to him in the December. Both of them, all together, I believe, uh, finished him off with the identical of the opioid as well. And these are the questions that I have. Why was my father put on this? And you tell me that every single person around here, just because I received this, I don't know how they actually allowed this to come through to me when I did my subject access request. But you tell me any of our carers haven't got something similar to this? We were all, everyone was on Everyone was on a similar yeah. pathway. Yeah. Everyone. Anyone who's got on this, this Midazolam thing, you know, must have had something like this. Well, at those, at those, those Somebody lend her a microphone.
plants as aid in the mum's life. We reassure her of beyond. Or the medical chart, it says end of Aslan on the 16th of December. So they were already doing it before they even said that they were going to give her this trial to enhance her life. There was no consultation with family members. Never. Never. And it's actually a big sheet found on the medical paper.
turn up next week to bolster the remnant. So, 
Anarchy would work with, with, with butter on, um, on a lemon. Bolt. I can tell you now, you only last part of the eight But we came away, as he tried with the sticks. Sat into the seven late afternoon. We got the dreaded phone And it was green. Sunday morning, I shot over to the hospital again, and I just had the same old arguments with him. I think it was the ward manager. When I turned up at the ward, it was yours. The, 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 the medical staff, I think they saw him somewhere around. And I was popped off. And I, I put this proposition to him. I said, if you've got a 50 year old man, and he's got the same medical condition. Does my sister have to die? And he's not. And he's not at all. Rest assured, we will do the best for you, sister. If you take him out of the And that was the appeasement that got us from home. So that was no better than seven. So then all we had said was the phone calls from the wall and all we got, she's had a good night, she's not had a good night, she's had a good night, she's not had a good night, we've turned over, we've done it. Now, this went on till the 23rd of November, and then we got the dreaded phone call, the sister's time. We went through, and that day, what he got. This is a summary of the medical director. There is a time he took her off the medical director. It was signed off to take her off, and she died very soon. Um, by a little bit of research and finding the right at the right school in Northeast, I did the FOI with the hospital. They can't support me. They wouldn't give it to me because I wasn't a poor brother. Um, so I had to jump through all the hoops to get the echo on, including his history in Australia, for the signed photograph, giving me permission to get the echo. I finally got them. I finally got them. This is just a
down by the clock. So my sister said, right, let's get down, let's move right down there by the clock. So we went inside of the, the actual wall, and my sister went into the coping wall, and she had a syringe dry up with your thing. Yeah. So my sister said, take that off first. Because we had already said we had to. Yeah, the day before, we said we don't take off that morphine because we didn't know what it was doing. So take off that morphine, but they didn't. They kept it on there. Yeah, so my sister went in there. So when she went in there, she saw that she was on that morphine. She took the mask off, and my mum said, So it tells you what, what was going on. They were just, yeah, morphine. So we got that taken off. So anyway, the doctor really wanted to get the meeting over quick. Because he said, because we had a meeting at 5 o'clock. This is and a West Middlesex hospital in Ironswood, Middlesex. West Middlesex hospital. And the doctors that were dealing with my mum are Craig Leeper and Hannah Barrett. And I say lots of them Craig Leeper and Hannah Barrett. Hannah Barrett. And I said that I felt that the compassion and the love that I'd always known in the NHS throughout our life has been ripped out of the NHS. I felt that they were as cold as ice. Yes. Thank you. 
and it's colours have come back and it looks great and it looks a lot healthier and bigger and everything, send the money to them. On the 13th of uh, July, we're saying we're sick of it now, he's sick to death, he said he was really depressed and we put him on CPAP pods, he said I feel like crying, I feel so down um, and I want to see him more restless. On the 14th of July, I received a FaceTime call of Bob in the morning, not one mention of the ventilator. Um, at 7 p.m. we received another FaceTime call and saying to put him a tube down his throat and knocking him out. He said the doctor, Tina Dove, told him he was going to die if he didn't go on a ventilator. He said he loves me, I had seen him when he wakes up. I've actually got a voice note off him at 2.30 that day saying I'm going to fight this and then by 7 o'clock that night he's suddenly going on a ventilator. What's the Tina Dove. Tina Dove. He was lucid and he was talking to some sense. Within three days, he said that his kidneys had packed up and he had to have dialysis. On the 19th, I received a phone call saying he needs to come into the hospital. Bob's going to die. He's not going to see the night out. But we couldn't get up. We were absolutely gobsmacked. We were so shocked because he was a fit, healthy man. He, was, he, he, he didn't have any medication. He had no underlying medicine. He was just it, generally fit. And, and we were all in shock. When we got there, I mean, he actually stabilised after this and he survived this, this particular night. And then um, I noticed, after he survived this, I noticed that the dazzle on the morphine and, and, and I, I asked the doctor why is he on the dazzle and he said, we've got to freeze his walls so the machine can be fired. Um, and it, it was just, I've got, a, I asked, I asked the doctor if my husband was on a pathway and he said no because I said, don't you give this to all people who are on a pathway? And he said, yes, we do, but it's not on a pathway. But my daughter here heard him say, or oh, slipped up saying he was on some kind of pathway. While Bob was in the hospital, he contracted quite a lot of infections, including sepsis, with this, and, and he said he had cold sore virus on his lungs. All sorts were going on. It was a doctor Wilson said to me, what was Bob saying? He saw himself in that state. And I was absolutely shocked. And I said, he'd say, fight as hard as you can for my life. Mm. I was called in another two times to say he'd die. And the last time he did die, he died on my son's birthday. Uh, we were with him. We were robbed of a loving husband, a father, a granddad, and a father-in-law. Bob was still working in our business and having lots of offer. It's sickening to know he was killed because it was lacrogenic. This is why he died. When I came away from the hospital, I should have felt I'd done everything in his power to save my husband. I felt very suspicious. I didn't feel right about how things had gone. I felt as though I couldn't wait to get him on a ventilator. You know, he wanted it, he was on it, he would definitely die. After I'd received my husband's note, I had a nurse go through with him and she told me he didn't stand a chance once he'd gotten into the hospital because of all the drugs they'd given him. Most of them had side effects that could cause severe depression and breathlessness and slight exertion. I asked the hospital, why would you give somebody who already had compromised lungs drugs that cause breathlessness? And I was told right from the beginning there was no cure for COVID. They said he, he had COVID. I noticed that... It made it that the day that he was coerced into an ventilator, 
there's no love. He told me, oh, you don't love everything. I said, you love what you had for dinner last week, but you don't have the most important decision in his life. There's no conversations had, there's no decisions made, there's no treatment plans. But they said, he went down to the left class and had to act fast. But even that didn't work. I had a post-mortem done. He said that he currently died of multiple organ failure and COVID-19. After the post-mortem was done, all his organs came back and were in good health. So how can anybody that's died of multiple organ failure if it isn't the medication that has caused it? Which hospital? Manchester World Infirmary.
medical history. Um, the, the COVID protocol started, and these treatment, treatments exasperated his situation, so it made his, uh, you know, what was going on already worse. Um, Dad was really panicked and scared. He was confused, isolated. He was begging us to get him out of there. And this was extremely dis distressing and a feeling of powerlessness. Dad was panicking and begging. Dr. Raj called me with an ultimatum. Your dad needs to go on a ventilator or he will die. I was not allowed to speak to my dad or sister. I went back to the corner and I had to deal with it. The same day, unknown to us, our dad had been put on a DNR. He was not asked, we, and we, we were not asked, and we were not informed. Yet, in the DNR documentation, in his medical notes, he states that I consented to a DNR. I was horrified. This was not, and would never have happened. I would never, ever consider this. My dad would never have wanted it. Dad was surprisingly making progress. His oxygen improved by 50%, and he was maintaining this. Dr. Raja decided he needed to be transferred as he was the wellest patient. Despite being continuously told he was old and critically ill, on his arrival at Bedford Hospital, the consultant informed us that he had spent all morning adjusting Dad's ventilation and switching his bed because he could not understand why he was given this treatment. Stupidly, we didn't ask what the treatment was. After retrieving Dad's hospital notes, it was brought to our attention that this treatment was midazolam and morphine, which Luton and Dunstall had given him the day before the transfer, intravenous five milligrams per hour, along with an increase during transfer his ventilation journey from 50% to 100%. We all know this is not good. All his progress was completely compromised and diminished, and there was tragically only one outcome with midazolam and morphine. This suppresses the respiratory system, and why 100% oxygen increase? Because obviously ventilation damage is, you know, has a, a negative impact on the lungs. Which may I add, this is not a good death, or should never be required as a treatment for a respiratory illness. Why transfer a patient to a COVID ICU ward without a positive test? Why give a DNR to a 64-year-old without informing or asking for consent from a next of kin? Why only COVID and nothing else? Why isolate a patient and not give them all means to communicate with their loved one? Why was I allowed to see my dad when he was on his deathbed and not when he was in the room? Our dad was 64 and he was not elderly. I believe hand on my heart he would still be here and not put, if he was not put on a COVID protocol and killed him. this. Death is not something that should be induced and caused by drugs that are not treatments. No health professional or government should have the authority or power or able to override families or end someone's life. Or should I say murder? The NHS are complicit in involuntary euthanasia, straight saving money and incentivised by our government with their COVID protocol.
levels. It is clearly about wealth, not health, and increasing the debt toll in the name of progress.
never really gave her any fluids. The only thing they gave was like a forceps uh, bottle, which is apparently nutrients all in one. Um, the food they were giving her was uh, just, just, it was what, jack and tail. In her state, uh, she, she declined so much, um, she didn't really have the energy to, to, to basically cut her own food, uh, but they didn't care. Um, she was then put on medazolam um, morphine uh, uh, driver. Um, what I was told that it was for her anxiety, um, on top of all the other drugs that they were giving her. Uh, I was pushing back, um, basically, to uh, find a life where I go about the call saying um, that make her comfortable um, and you need to come down ASAP. So uh, the final night when I got there, um, the, uh, all her observations have been taken down. Um, I asked why. Um, they said, one of the young nurses said because she's on palliative care, which is the first I heard of it. So um, on a question I pushed back, I had a bit of observations. Um, Patients in, in a care home setting 
have not actually any form of documented consent. So it's not just the case of saying consent is there, 53% do not even know they have a do not resuscitate order, and that's in breach of a clear court of appeal judgment, which, right. which I know Maji yeah. now as I spoke Matt, Maji, will you say a few words? I'm conscious of time, um, so all I'll say is thank you, everybody, for the patience you continue to show uh, through these horrific family ordeals, and I promise you that I believe you, and we will do everything we can to make sure that the wider society believes you and continues to push for your rights. We are doing our jobs here. This is our uh, uh, professional duty to give you a hearing uh, and to take this story forward until the very... Uh, ultimate conclusion, that is that justice is served. Um, I can't promise you that, but I can promise you that we will try the hardest. It is correct that this is a policy of involuntary state euthanasia. It is also correct that those people that were administering this uh, cannot hide behind following orders. This is for those who implemented it, this is an act of killing and, if legally judged, murder. Yeah. And that's, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, that's the story. Yeah. Thank you very much.